What's up, Undercover Cops? Welcome to the Jesus of Movies podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow high school graduate, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what they might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today, we're talking about 21 Jump Street, and Graham, my one question for you is, what is a covalent bond? It's something I learned in app chemistry, baby. Come on. Man, covalent bonds. Who knew that they could be so powerful? Yeah, that foils one of the early questions I had for you, which is, are you more of a drama student or a chemistry student? Are you more of a Schmidt or a Janko? (laughs) I think I would identify more with the character of Schmidt, even though Schmidt might be the one who's naturally better at chemistry. Um, but I think I would probably fare better in drama than chemistry. I don't know. What do you, what about yourself? I'm more chemistry. I thought going into Davidson, I might major in chemistry. Oh, and yeah. then I took chem 115 and I liked it, but the labs were, I did not like being in the lab and it seemed like everybody else did. And it was a conflict with golf as well. Do you think you could pass for a high schooler? Oh yeah. All the time. I mean, given the fact that I spend a lot of my personal time hanging out with high school students. Um, I get asked very frequently, am I a junior? Am I a senior? Uh, I figure I got at least a couple more years where I can be considered, you know, 18 years old or less. I am I am 23, though. I think you with the beard right now, no way you're passing as a high schooler. Yeah, I think the beard has to go for that. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who can't see, Kevin's beard is significantly longer than his hair these days. It's weird. So. Um. I don't know about you, but I really like this movie. I think that it hits all the necessary genre beats of a police mystery. So you had like the mystery supplier was someone we knew but didn't expect. We have setbacks that lead to increased pressure from the police boss, clues along the way. Um, Mr. Walters, like you and I talked about, kind of a reference to Breaking Bad. There's a little clue there. Other people uh, also undercover. Uh, There's the buddy movie genre. Each need what the other has, and they kind of meet in the middle. And then um, the high school setting, obviously so many genre beats here. The school play, track meet, cafeteria, chemistry classes, drama tryouts, yearbook elective, the occasional parents are gone party, driver's ed car, a staff that doesn't seem to care about what they do, um, which is maybe something we'll talk about later. And then, of course, prom and the graduation slideshow. I mean, like, does not every high school movie have like a prom sequence yeah totally i mean the prom sequence that comes to mind for me is napoleon dynamite time after time dance scene it's really uncomfortable but i think that's one of the things that 21 jump street does so well is that yes it fits within the genre of traditional kind of high school setting but does a really great job of inverting those expectations and so i really like that specifically in the friend group with molly and eric and the things that they care about and how it's so different than when Schmidt and Janko were actually in high school themselves seven years prior. So yes, it has a traditional setting, but it does a good job of upsetting what the expectations of what that uh, kind of scenario is going to look like. I agree. And many people have said that they, what they really like is how self-referential it is and how we have like the non-explosions that we might expect to see explode in other movies of its nature. We have the great line from the police... Who is that? The police chief who's basically like, 
Uh, luckily for you two hooligans, we've got this new program down on Jump Street because the people in charge have decided they lack any sort of creativity, and so they're going to reboot this old program from the 80s and hope that none of us notice because it's absolute crap. Yeah, I mean, that's Nick Offerman right there, and also this is just such a star-studded cast. I mean, you got Nick Offerman, uh, a.k.a. Ron Swanson being that police chief, obviously Ice Cube, Johnny Depp, I completely forgot that he was in this movie, Ellie Kemper from The Office, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, who plays the crazy teacher who's obsessed with uh, Janko. So, yeah, there's a lot of star power and just a lot going on in this film. Jake Johnson, too, from New Girl, is the principal. I love him. Jonah Hill is a... I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie with him that I didn't like. I recently watched Moneyball, mm. and I liked it so much that I, as soon as it was over, I just play again, repeat, back mm. to back. Yeah. Uh, I, and I thought he was, like, the MVP of that movie. Um I think he's super entertaining and he feels honest and trustworthy and sincere, but also he's hilarious. And uh, I feel like Janko has the funnier line. I would too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Me laugh. yeah, I mean, I think there are two different kinds of comedy. Janko's comedy is a lot more overt and Schmidt's a lot more subtle. Uh, there's yeah. like a little bit more emotional complexity, I think, to it. But um, I agree. I mean, I think both of them are incredible. And I don't think, you know, Either of them have done a movie together since then. I mean, other than 22 Jump Street, I'm like, I would take like five more movies with the two of them together. (laughs) Man, I could talk about this movie all day. Let's hit some awards, though. Give me your Lazarus Award for the most high-key gospel moment in this movie. All right. So with my Lazarus Award, I am taking Schmidt's realness before Korean Jesus on 21 Jump Street. Hey, Korean Jesus. I don't know if you only cater to Korean Christians, or if you even exist, no offense. I just, uh, I'm really freaked out about going back to high school. It was just so fucking hard the first time. I know we haven't made our first arrest, or maybe I'm not the best cop. Korean Jesus, I just really don't want to fuck this up. I'm sorry for swearing so much. The end? I don't really know how to end a prayer. The end? Yes, it is comedic, and this whole movie is comedic, pretty much. Um, But what Schmidt is doing is he's being really real and vulnerable before Jesus, this figure. Um, Even though that's something that's very uncomfortable and uncommon and made fun of. Like, we have... Jenko in the back actually laughing at him as he's praying before Jesus. And so I picked this because emotional vulnerability is not commonplace, especially among young men in our culture today. Um, and yet we are able to experience the transcendent grace of God when we are most real with him about the internal strife in our lives. And there's a lot of evidence in this in the Bible. Um, I think Psalms is really key because there's so much lamenting going on from the psalmist about, hey, God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? I am uh, wetting my bed with tears um, from all of like the pain that I'm going through. And so I pulled a couple of verses here. I got Hebrews 4.13, quote, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We think about vulnerability as something that we have to bring out ourselves, um, and yet, if we are truly to look at who God is through the Bible, 
we see that God actually sees us at our most vulnerable state, whether we bring it to him or not. So we might as well reveal the truth to him because he already knows the truth. He already sees us in our nakedness. And so uh, it actually helps us see ourselves through a more biblical lens if we are willing to be vulnerable in that specific way. I got Psalm 44, 21. Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Harping on the similar point that God sees us in spite of us uh, not being willing to be vulnerable before him. Um, Psalm 77, 1 through 2. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. Again, a real sorrow and realness and genuine honesty before God. Schmidt is terrified about going back to high school. He doesn't uh, want to go do it. He had a terrible experience his first time, and he talks to God about like how it literally sucks, and he uh, is going to need his help in the midst of that. Um, and I want to be sure to differentiate here. Like Going before God vulnerably is not uh, grumbling before God, like you would see in Numbers 11 and some of the Israelites being like, God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Just complaining. Um, there's a difference between grumbling and lamenting, and I think this is more of the latter, that Schmidt is being real and honest before Jesus. He's saying, like, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what I would like, where I'd like to see you show up. Um, and I think that actually earns the Lazarus Award for me. Yeah, so one of my questions for you would be, if God already knows everything we've done, everything we've thought, felt, said, why does he want us to be vulnerable with him? Hmm. I think a lot of it is allowing ourselves to see ourselves through God's eyes. Um, once we like reveal and are willing to confess and bring to light our own brokenness and our own secure insecurities, we're able to accept God's grace that much more. And so by kind of taking it out from inside and looking at it and examining it, we can realize uh, kind of externally how broken we are. And in that, uh, God meets us in his grace is that much more. So I would say that's kind of the general point of it. Okay. And to push even a little harder, does that mean that prayer is ultimately only for us because it's like we are benefiting from a more godly perspective of who we are? I mean, I think that's an age old question and that's really tough. Um, I think, yes, one of the key one of the key uh, facets of prayer is the changing of our own hearts and drawing us closer to him. But at the same time, we see in the Old Testament, um, like people coming before God and praying to him and him actually changing circumstances based off of prayer. And so God like hears prayer and he changes the world in the midst of that. And that's not to say that God isn't sovereign because God has always been sovereign. He actually knew beforehand you were going to pray what you were going to pray. Um, but he actually takes into account human agency and allows us to have a, a two-way relationship with him. Um, I think there are a lot of really great examples of this in the Old Testament. I won't dive into them right now just for time's sake. but um, Right, but for the examples that are there, you would say God's mind isn't really changed in the sense that he's sovereign and he's outside of time and he always knew what would be prayed and therefore what the new outcome would be. So it's not really new to him, but there is a sense in which he has allowed human agency to seemingly affect his will. Yeah, I think that'd probably be the super reformed approach to it. And honestly, I don't feel like I know enough about this specific theological. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm just I'm pushing a little bit. No, no. I think that it's a good point. Um, yeah, I, honestly, I just don't know. I <laughs> I don't honestly know where I stand on it. But uh, I think prayer, uh, primarily, I would say, is for our own hearts. Well, I think what's tricky about this kind of spectrum is that if you are on the more reformed side and you believe. God is supremely sovereign. And that's not, that's actually a redundant term. God is sovereign. It implies supremacy. Uh, then 
what's the point of asking for anything? It's all set in stone. God has already laid out things from the foundation. Before the foundation of the world, he's already, you know, he knows the elect. He knows what will happen. He knows who will be president. He knows who's going to win the Monday Night Football game. He knows how old you're going to be. He's numbered our days, as we see over and over in Psalms and Ecclesiastes and, and other places too. Uh, so like, what's the point? But then if you kind of go on the other side of the spectrum, it's sort of like, if it's all up for grabs, why do I need God? Like, what's his role in it anyway? So why pray to him in that way either? Um, anyways, so that's tricky. But okay, I like this. So vulnerability before Korean Jesus, even if that's not, I guess what's challenging about that moment is that it feels like Schmidt, and maybe Schmidt feels like this too, is kind of praying to nobody, like there's no answer. So it's kind of a one-sided prayer. And I guess the more biblical approach would be prayer is actually not mutually exclusive with reading the Bible or reading prayers even within the Bible that sort of uh, can channel God's response back to us so that uh, instead of sort of praying, oh my gosh, God, I'm terrified for this upcoming undercover police assignment and looking into the clouds for a response, but that we we could look in the Bible and, and see God's response pour out over us, whether that's through how he responds to Job's prayers or David's prayers in the Psalms or what Jesus has to say to his followers or really anywhere like that's God's word. Like that is his response. He's already spoken. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think, um, like asking God to show up when you are not willing to be submissive to what he's calling you into is kind of a fallacy in and of itself. Like, are we asking God to show up and do stuff in spite of us, like being cognizant of the fact that we're really trying to actively get in the way? Like, uh, that seems kind of murky to me. And I think that's kind of one of the flaws with this scene here. Yeah, and I don't want to pick it to bits because I think this is a great Lazarus Ward. And I do, when you watch that scene, you really do feel the vulnerability. It feels very real. And I think a lot of us can put ourselves in Schmidt's shoes there. It was just so hard. It just sucked. I don't want to go back. And all feelings are validated before God, whether they're right or wrong. You know what I mean? As the great line from Sven to Kristoff in Frozen 2, you feel what you feel and those feelings are real. Come on, Kristoff, let down your guard. That is essentially like the call to prayer in some ways. Uh, my Lazarus Award for high-key gospel moment is the final standoff scene, Janko and Schmidt versus Mr. Walters. Are you alive, buddy? You okay? You took a pull for me, man. Yeah, I'm feeling a little ambivalent about that right now. Did you hear me? I said don't. You got this. Hey, hold for Janko takes the bullet for Schmidt, uh, which is kind of the sacrificial atonement, and that's what we would see as the more explicit gospel moment, right? Like he's taking the literal bullets from Mr. Walters' gun that should have killed Schmidt and instead pays that price for him. But then we have this cool thing where sort of shot and wounded, lying on the ground, Janko looks up and tells Schmidt, hey, you've got this, uh, sort of calling and equipping him uh, and sort of mirroring the sequence that we see with the gospel where it's grace first and then that grace... Uh, is responsive with works. And so the Holy Spirit first regenerates our spiritually dead souls. And from then on, God gives us the unmerited gift of faith in him and the unmerited gift of the desire to obey his word and to live into who he always made us to be. That sanctification process has begun. And so we see this kind of like sequence, and this is, it sounds so intuitive, but I think so many people get this wrong, especially outsiders looking in think, if I do the right thing, then I'm accepted. And this is classic. No, 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 no. You're accepted. Therefore, you can obey. And we see this sequence over and over in scripture. Here's John 15, 13 to 17. 
Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend. That is literally what we just saw in 21 Jump Street. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So we see multiple times in just those few verses, hey, I laid down my life for my friends. I am love, therefore love one another. Uh, we see the same thing in Ephesians 2. We've talked about this verse a lot already this year, but I think this is just at the heart of the gospel. Verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then we see this turn. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So kind of that sequence, one, two. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so there's, after that's kind of happened, we get this cool thing where they both complement each other. And it's kind of like the climax or resolution of, or fulfillment of their sort of becoming brothers arc throughout the movie, where they each celebrate each other. And here's what we hear. Yes! 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 You are under arrest! Give my hands You have the right to remain silent! Anything you say can and will be used again! so good we did it man you're a goddamn rock star do you feel that god damn you're so cool you just shot him in the dick i've never seen that who does that look i'm sorry i called you rain man i know i didn't say you were but you're smart you're a smart guy and and you're thoughtful and you're sincere and, and you're, you're you're sweet and you're loyal and i fucking cherish you and so I think it's kind of this two-way praise between us and God for the rest of eternity. We worship God and God brags to the angels about us because we are in Christ. And that's who he sees when he sees us. Uh, and we kind of see this pattern in scripture as well. We're sort of like God blesses his people and then the people respond in worship. And it's kind of that like when you lead with love, love follows. Another thing we see in Frozen, people make bad choices when they're mad or scared or stressed, but throw a little love their way and you bring out their best. Kind of this idea that what you lead with is what comes back. Uh, and so we kind of see this in Second Samuel 7 between God and David. God blesses David in his house and his generations to come. And in response, David praises God. Just like sit back and listen to this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And so it goes on and on, and God is just blessing David and his future generations all the way down to verse 17, and then David responds in verse 18 with what is uh, subtitled for the heading, David's Prayer of Gratitude. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so 
David kind of praises God after being blessed and praised by God. And so we kind of see that two-way interaction between Janko and Schmidt. And maybe that feels weird because it maybe feels like, you know, most of the Bible is humanity praising God. But when does God actually praise his people? Like, obviously, we have the Psalms over and over and over, you know, glory to God, glory to God, praise the one, the Alpha, the Omega, right? But does God really praise his people? Like, what's praiseworthy about us? But I would say there's actually a lot of scripture that does talk about this. This is Psalm 18:19. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is Psalm 149:4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Isaiah 62, verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. So this language over and over, and you know, the writer of the gospel of John obviously felt that too. He constantly refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I want to uh, go out of scripture for a moment and tell you the story. This story has had a big impact uh, on the life of the pastor who mentors me. This story is called My Father's Shirt. So this is a story written by a woman who has struggled kind of with deciding whether or not to become a Christian for the better part of her life. And after having decided to accept Jesus based on this encounter, she reflects on the encounter and she writes this. When I was very young, my older sister was hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. I'm not sure how I can explain my motive. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter. I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it, but I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high. So I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard, and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was, and I rather joyfully clothespinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. And then she later reflects this, As I remembered these scenes from the past, I saw that through the years I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I hadn't been listening when he described himself. She's telling the story of ruining her father's shirts to the pastor, and the pastor asks her, What do you think your actual heavenly father would have responded like how would he have responded to ruining the shirt and she said he would forget the shirt and hug me and i think that's like how we intuitively think of god like an earthly father might punish me for something like that but the god of the bible would say it's okay and hug me but the pastor says to her you still don't understand fully god would not overlook the shirt but take it put it on and wear it to work and when someone commented on the rust marks he would say let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. This woman writes, I was overwhelmed with that realization. I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I had failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to be away when God got home, so to speak. And so I think this shirt and some of the verses we read before really captures how God actually speaks as highly of his people as we sort of try to speak of him. In fact, he is speaking much higher of us than we speak of him, even though it should be the reverse, if that makes sense. And so that's kind of what I see between Schmidt and Janko here. There's this mutual affirmation and praise that comes from being united in mission and uh, that follows kind of the gospel sequence of 
atonement, Jaco taking the bullets for Schmidt, and then sort of uh, sanctification or saying, hey, Schmidt, you got this. You can do this kind of a call to arms. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think um, one of the things I would like have a question for is uh, how is this different than like, hey, uh, Jenko goes and takes the bullet for Schmidt, and then Schmidt's like, man, now I get to be awesome. Like, now I get to go be the one who takes down the bad guy. Like, is there uh, something to be said here? Like, does that border on the fringe of prosperity gospel if I'm like, hey, Jesus takes the bullet for me so, like, I can be fully realized and be, like, the man? Uh, do you feel like there's a danger that this scene argues that? And how is what you're arguing different than, like, that theology? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think the difference is that throughout this movie, Schmidt has struggled with, quote, pulling the trigger. As Jenko says, he's going to choke, he's going to choke referencing all the way back to the very first scene in the high school where he's asking, you know, the cute girl out and he like can't bring himself to do it basically. And then when Molly brings up prom, Jake is like, oh, he's going to choke. He's going to choke. He can't do it. Uh, and then he kind of stumbles his way through it. So it's like kind of a half choke, but basically because she already wants to go, the performance in the moment didn't matter. And then maybe most notably when they're sort of in that big car chase and Schmidt is like aiming the gun out the window and Janko's like, shoot, shoot, like you have to shoot, like we're going to die if you don't shoot or whatever. And eventually he doesn't shoot. And so Janko shoots for him. And then Schmidt is all mad. And he's like, why did you do that? Why did you shoot for me? And Janko's like, you were choking. You weren't shooting. And so it's kind of this overarching, um, almost like litmus test for their relationship, like the degree to which their brothers is reflected by the degree to which Janko thinks that Schmidt is going to choke in some ways. And so I think in this scene, it's less so like you can go be a superstar, like you're you're the man now that uh, I've taken a bullet for you. And it's more so like, hey, whereas in the past, I didn't believe you can do it. Right now, I actually believe that you can do this. Whereas before, I was like, either didn't think you could or frankly, wasn't rooting for you too. Yeah, so maybe there's kind of a role of like sovereignness, like God believing in us that we have like the ability to do something because he has like given us permission to do something. Or because we were spiritually dead and now we're spiritually alive and no good work can be done by anyone who's spiritually dead, scripturally. Yeah, no, that makes more sense. I like that. It's good stuff. Yeah, and we'll talk about that more in the Jesus Award because it'll be closely linked. So in the meantime, send me to your Mary Magdalene Award for the most Loki, or I guess it's not the most Loki, but for a Loki gospel movement in this movie. So my Mary Magdalene Award is Schmidt and Eric in the post-party scene. And I think it's a really powerful moment, one, because uh, it's when Schmidt and Eric kind of solidify their friendship. Eric's like, that was an incredible party. And Schmidt's like, I'm doing stuff like this all the time. Uh, And we see Schmidt, who has been so insecure throughout the entire movie, finally have this moment where he is validated by somebody who is cool. Um, And I think that this is actually a really good picture as to how Satan works and operates in our world. Um, Satan actually does a great job of fulfilling our earthly desires of pleasure and wanting to be accepted by the right people and wanting to have our ego stroked and, uh, you know, wanting to have, you know, this great debauchery of of a time. Um, But yet at the same time, like, he is not good. He fulfills these earthly 
like earthly desires, but anything that is like beyond that, he just falls drastically short. And as we see, like Eric is not uh, a sustainable and healthy friendship. Like he is in many ways the foil for what Janko ends up being, the friend that uh, Schmidt thinks he needs, but in reality he needs Janko. And so um, I got a couple verses here on Satan and just how he works and operates in the world. John eight four four. Um, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, like Eric could go up to Schmidt and say, hey, I think you're really cool and I think you have value to add. But the reality is he's just furthering Eric's cause. He doesn't actually care about Schmidt on a deep level in the way that Janko does. Um, Luke 4, 6 through 7. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority. Sorry, this is when Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be it will all be yours. Again, tempting Jesus with the the stroke of the ego. Like, hey, if you if you give in to me, like I'll give you the desires of your heart and everything in the world that has value. Um, and finally I got Proverbs 1430. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Um, and so, like, how Schmidt is just envious of Eric and the life he lives. Um, and you see kind of the arrival of Janko at the end of the scene. And, again, what Eric is doing here is also stirring division between Schmidt and Janko. Um, because Schmidt is buddying up with Eric, like, he no longer has a depth and the realness of the relationship with his partner, the one that he was ultimately designed for. And so um, what Satan does is he gives us um, kind of false images of what we think we want, uh, when in reality, um, taking us away from the supplier of what is actually good and fulfills those desires to their fullest. So that's why the Schmidt and Eric post-party scene uh, gets my Mary Magdalene Award. Yeah, and really that whole party sequence leading up to that moment is kind of the example of that. Like Schmidt is somebody that he's really not throughout the whole thing just to try and keep Eric to stay. Cause in the beginning, remember he's going to leave until the other high school, the rivals show up. Right. And then he kind of, he puffs out his chest and kind of confronts that guy, Scott and is like, yo, I'm gonna handle this. And it seems like he's playing it really cool, but reality is he's just putting on a front. So I guess that'll transition nicely. Like what is your Mary Magdalene award for 21 jump street? Yeah. So mine actually comes from the same scene, but a few minutes earlier, and it's when Janko says to the chemistry nerds, anyone who says they don't care about prom actually secretly does. You're on the prom committee. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's going to be fun? Did she just bring up prom on her own? She did. She just brought up prom. What's she doing? I think it's going to be awesome. Prom eats a dong. Multiple right. dongs. Anyone who says they don't care about prom actually secretly does. Who's going to take the prom? There's no one who's going to go to prom with us. My thought is that we desperately try to tell ourselves we don't care about the parts of our lives where we have open wounds or deep scarring, especially when we're responsible for failure. Um, and here, it's a crushing feeling of rejection, I think. The chemistry nerds feel forced into saying prom is stupid because they don't think that they could ever be accepted there or make it there or hang with that crowd. But it seems like they would love to if they could, you know, and we kind of see hints of that throughout the party evening, like they're stoked just to be able to be there. And they're stoked at the prospect of Janky bringing girls up there to hang out with them. Like, it seems like it's a part of their life that like they wish they could have, but they feel like they don't. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, actually a biblical mindset would kind of reframe our thinking of the scene, right? If we're like, hey, man, like we feel such a desire to... uh, like to have this sort of acceptance and to have like this experience and um 
And yet, like, that is so deprived to us because, like, in many ways, from worldly perspective, like, very few of us live up to that standard of being what the world wants us to be. Um, And yet, like, when we realize we are fully loved and fully accepted by God, it allows us to, like, would you say it allows us to go to the prom? Would it allow us to, like, not even want to go to the prom at all? Like, how would a biblical mindset reframe the way in which we think about prom? Yeah, that, like we are the bride to Jesus is the true and greater prom date. I would say maybe, uh, also that like everyone at the prom is just as messed up and insufficient as you are. I recently, um, got to talk with a friend of mine and we had been able to discuss how the Bible talks about how sin is universal and sort of equally distributed it upon all humans in a sense. How Romans 3 is very clear about there's no one who's righteous, no, not one. Like all deserve condemnation and wrath and damnation and hell for eternity. And and he was actually saying that it was one of the most comforting things he had heard in a long, long time because he felt like, oh, it's a level playing field. And, and he had felt like he was way behind that. And so he liked the idea of like we're all kind of in it together in that sense. So maybe there's a sense of like everyone at the prom is just as unworthy of being there as you are a chemistry nerd who doesn't feel like you can hang. Um, and I, but I also think there's something to be said for kind of that envy and despair, like saying you don't care about something where you're actually really jealous. Um, you know, Cain might not have really cared supposedly that Abel brought God the better offering. Jacob might not have really cared that Esau was slated to get the birthright as the firstborn son. Joseph's 11 brothers might not have really cared that their father, Jacob gave Joseph the coat of many colors. Uh, Saul might not have really cared that everyone praised David because Saul knew that he himself was Israel's king. Judas might not have really cared that he was the one who turned in Jesus to the Romans. Uh, And yet in all these instances, we see that they actually really, really did care. Matthew 27, verse 3, Then when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, Judas departed and he went and hanged himself. And so we see that, you know, maybe before he was kind of, you know, I don't really care about this guy in front of the disciples or I don't really care if I'm the one to do it. Somebody's got to do it. But later on, he really cares. And so I don't know if that's the angle to go with that, but I wonder if there's something more on par with the gospel explicitly. Like people in your life might not really care that you're a Christian. But while they publicly don't care, they might be studying your life intensely to see if you have something that they want, or perhaps the more likely, they want what you have, but they don't feel like they can have it because what will their parents think, or what will their friends think, what will their boyfriend think, or or will they have to change jobs or start going to church or stop getting drunk or stop sleeping around or you name it, whatever it is that's keeping them from making the decision to surrender to Jesus. And I don't think this is to say that every time somebody says they don't care about something, they secretly deeply care about that thing. You know, I don't think that's what I'm saying here. I'm just trying to say that I think this can sometimes be true and we'd be wise to be aware of that, especially when it comes to Christianity, which leads to maybe my last point here before I toss it back to you. I think the most powerful of all the variations of this parallel is the feeling of unworthiness. Uh, I wonder if deep down a lot of us carry the tremendously heavy weight of the law on our shoulders our entire lives. You know, people think that they're too far gone. Or maybe they think Christianity is some kind of moral hierarchy that they've been disqualified 
from or some kind of group of pure people that they could never be good enough to stay in. Or maybe they don't care at all about the morality because they think I'm already so far behind. What's the point? Uh, what would you say to that kind of person, Graham? That like the wages of sin is death and that there's no sin that is in God's eyes greater than other sin. And so, yes, from a worldly perspective, it's like some people sin more than others, but that's just not like God's perspective on things. Any sin, even the slightest little inkling of sin separates us completely from God. And so reality is it's a, it's a level playing field spiritually. And I think we do a really poor job of communicating that. Um, to non-believers and honestly to believers alike because it can create this kind of superiority complex when in reality like that doesn't exist at all that's just something that's sinful and of man yes and i'm going to put you to the test of your words here do you think that judas could have uh, is his sin forgivable uh <clears throat> i would say no but i would have to dig more into the text and so there are sins that are like unforgivable like one of the ones you read about in the bible is that like blaspheming the holy spirit is an unforgivable sin um and so it's not in the sense that like because it's so bad it's unforgivable it's more that god has specifically ordained that this these things or this person is not forgiven and that is like god's sovereignty but it's not necessarily dependent upon the specific actions if that makes sense yeah it makes sense i probably disagree i think judas could be forgiven i think when we think about the the only unforgivable sin in the bible is blasphemy but i I really think that's ultimately just the sin of unbelief so they're really no different from a non-believer yeah there's a good conversation that could definitely be had about that okay false prophet award for non-biblical argument that this movie makes the moment when Schmidt and Janko take down Mr. Walters, the drug dealer. And so the thing I want to focus on here is that there is a healthy difference between justice and revenge. God is the author of justice, we are not. And yet when we attempt to take justice into our own hands, it becomes revenge very commonly. And so what we see in this scene, uh, Schmidt and Janko kind of finally realize their potential as cops. They, They take him down and then... After they take him down, they they get up in his face and they start screaming like, these are your Miranda rights. And it's kind of this funny moment of like, hey, they finally memorized or Janko finally memorized his Miranda rights. And then they're like, screw you, man. Like, we we hate you, blah, 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 blah. Um, And yet I would say that in this instance, it's a lot more revenge than justice. And I think there's a lot of biblical evidence to back that up. Romans 12, 19 through 21. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written... It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so what uh, Paul is saying in this specific letter is like, hey, our job is not to carry out justice. Like that is actually God's job. It is God's job to avenge. Uh, it is God's job to repay people. Uh, and I'm not saying that that is absent of justice that exists on earth. Like we do need uh, laws in our society to have a functioning society. We do need a criminal justice system because uh, in an earthly way, like justice does have to be paid out. But at the same time, when we begin to condemn people around us, we are taking on the role of God uh, more than we are taking on the role of somebody who is bringing righteous justice into the world. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 35, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Um, on contrary, repay evil with blessing because 
to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Again, this is what God calls us to do is to uh, repay evil with good. And that's what we see Jesus like turning the other cheek. And that doesn't mean to be complicit in injustice that goes on in the world. And so we're not saying like, hey, don't take action whatsoever. I think there's a biblical way to go about that. But uh, what I do know is that biblically revenge is not glorified or thought highly of. And uh, I think that's why this is my false prophet scene. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And what's so interesting is that that's the moment that I chose for my Lazarus Award. So we're really butting heads here. I'm saying the most gospel moment is the thing you're saying is the least gospel. So talk me through that. So I think for you, it was more of a relationship between Schmidt and Janko kind of gospel moment. I'm thinking for me, this is a Schmidt and Janko versus uh, Mr. Walters moment. Yes, Um, absolutely. And so, yes, there's something sweet that's happening between those two guys. But when it comes to like, hey, we bond over like destroying somebody and over kind of pulverizing them and asserting our dominance. Like, I don't know. It's it's more of a, a power flip rather than like, hey, let's both like repent and work towards actual justice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that'll be the case in many movies to come that we do on this podcast. That is like, like, I feel like movies are so good at capturing the human condition and sort of who we are. That's why it's a lot easier for us to pull gospel moments than it is for us to pull false prophets, I think. Um, but I think like the revenge thing is just something that like everybody seems to get wrong. I just don't really understand why it's such a glaring inconsistency in kind of the world of storytelling. Like, I mean, pretty much every Marvel movie is like, uh, how can we one up the bad guy? Basically, you know, it's really only the original Thor that I can think of that basically says like, no, there's you know the true king the true warrior like is not gonna play that game yeah i mean i'm sure i could think of them if i really thought about it but there's not many that off the top of my head fit the biblical narrative of justice especially at the end yeah and i think it's it's justice and it's also loving enemies and forget you know like they could have sort of been like hey mr walters this is really sad but we have to arrest you you know like we don't want this for you but the law must be upheld or like they could have kind of arced to there from where they were in the beginning of the movie, which is arresting or like pinning that one. Uh, they're called the one percenters. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah, but when they yeah. like pin him in the park and then they're just like uh, air humping him in the ground and firing shots into the air and celebrating. Yeah, and it's yeah. like they're kind of exactly where they started in that regard, where they finished the movie at the same level of <laughs> unawareness of, I don't know upholding the law honorably i suppose my false prophet award goes to the glorification of drugs sex outside of marriage drunkenness and rule breaking and i want to take kind of a different approach instead of just sort of pointing to the bible and saying well here jesus tells us not to do this or whatever um really with these things these sins i think the idea is essentially the same kind of for all of them they make us more alive more ourselves we get to be a part of something with everyone else we get to share an experience and make memories we won't forget. And I think that that's really like the narrative of sex, drugs, and drunkenness in this movie and in our world, especially in my college experience. And I think it's a good lie because it's really rooted in truth. Like we desperately want fellowship and relationships and meaningful experiences and risk and reward and big memories and to be a part of a culture bigger than ourselves and to know our place in it and to have something and people to turn to when life is relentlessly unfair and it just sucks and I get it. Uh, I had lots of conversations with friends from Davidson who were kind of really in on these things who said, yeah, that is like the big part of the appeal to me is that like it's a culture that I can buy into and lock arms with with other people. And I get that. And I think that, uh, well, what would you add? to? Is there anything you would sort of add or subtract from that narrative? 
essentially we are trying to find like in, in many ways these things are solutions to the things that we are feeling and dealing with uh, they just happen to be solutions that don't actually care about us and aren't gonna like foster true like growth and uh, true healing like they you know like the reason that people drink is because like drinking helps and like the reason that like people take drugs are like drugs help uh, but ultimately it's just uh, it's a temporary fix for a permanent eternal problem and uh, and when we try to put band-aids on a gaping wound it's just not gonna prevent any it's not gonna it's not gonna develop any long-term healing yeah that's well said and so to kind of continue to affirm what does work about these things I guess, in Paul's letters, he often compared and contrasted drunkenness with being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, but he also critiques it. So listen carefully to how he kind of affirms and critiques. This is Ephesians 5 right here, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there it's kind of like posited as an alternative. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. But there's still kind of like, even on a language level, be filled with the Spirit. Like it kind of does sort of mirror like the drunkenness, I guess. And then kind of the passage that gets cited a lot, I think, Acts 2, 1 through 13, like at Pentecost. This is kind of where Pentecostals get a lot of their, uh, I don't know, vibes, I guess. Um, (laughs) Theology. (laughs) Luke, writing Acts as a continuation of his gospel account, records that at the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the scene was just so weird and wild that many people actually thought everyone who was supposedly infused with the Holy Spirit was actually just drunk. This is down here at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine, i.e. they're drunk. Um, and so we kind of see this connection here in a few other spots in Scripture too, but I think it's a little bit of a stretch. Like I think people sort of make this argument sometimes in the church of like, you know, if you were really walking in step with the Spirit, like people would think that you're like drunk on the Spirit, like you're drunk on Jesus or whatever. Like that, that's kind of like the argument. But I don't know. I think when you look at that language in Ephesians, we see intentionality, wisdom, discernment, encouragement, relationships, submission, even. And I don't really associate any of these things with drunkenness. And I think in a lot of ways, like submission and intentionality and wisdom are sort of the opposite of drunkenness. And so I think this argument gets like wrongfully twisted, like when people sort of connect being drunk in the spirit with being drunk on wine. What do you think? Yeah, I think maybe a drunken, like bold, like when people are drunk, they're, they tend to be bolder and just being like, man, they would never do that when they're sober, right? Uh, okay, like, yeah, a little fearlessness. Yeah, fearlessness, like, man, like, what is he on? Like, I, I want some of that is kind of a common phrase, right? And so um, I think, like, when you see people who are, like, really kind of living out the gospel life in, in crazy ways, um, like, it can be a little bit jarring in the sense that, like, who lives their life in that way, yeah. right? Like, when I worked at um, a church in Tampa last summer, like, all the people that worked at the church took a vow to live at or below the poverty line. And like, I don't know where I stand on that theologically, but I'm like, these people are crazy. Like, what are they doing? Why are they moving into like the worst neighborhoods and trying to do incarnational ministry in like the poorest parts of the city? Um, But yet like the spirit compels us to do things that are so crazy and so beyond our earthly desires um, that I think you can't help but look at them and be like, there's something different that's got to be going on there. Yeah, okay. I kind of hear that. I think there's a lot more to be said there, but we'll keep moving on. Give me your Jesus Award for the most Christ-like character in this movie. So for my Jesus Award, I chose Molly. 
One, she lives in the middle of this high school culture. Um, she kind of has this thing where she's like with Eric, but not really with Eric. Um, and so she's in the heat of this culture, but she's not consumed by it. Um, she seems to have kind of a secure identity in and of herself. She's not uh, looking externally for that to be validated in the way that Schmidt is looking externally for his character and kind of beliefs to be validated. Um, and so this reminds me of John eight twenty three, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He told them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. And so we frequently hear this phrasing in uh, kind of Christianity that Jesus is in the world but not of the world, and as his followers we are called to be in the world but not of the world. And I think this is kind of what Molly's living out here, is that she is in this friend group and in this debauchery but not of it, like her identity does not stem from it. Um, I think uh, to on top of that, like she bonds with Schmidt through his emotional vulnerability. And so to bring that back to my Lazarus Award moment, when Schmidt is talking to Korean Jesus and he's just like really real and vulnerable for him, like vulnerability actually fosters deep and real relationships. And that's one of the things that we see Janko struggling to do at the onset of this film is um, like Schmidt is a lot easier, uh, better at trying and like being real. And, and out of that, like there's actually benefits that come from that. Um, and so I think that's like really similar in the way that like the more real and the more honest we've come before Jesus, like uh, the more like we get to experience his goodness and like his grace. And so um, I love the scene at the end when they're outside the ambulance and um, Schmidt's like, man, you should like continue to have a really high standard for guys because that's what you deserve. And you shouldn't like settle for people like me. Uh, and yet like, while Schmidt does not meet these impossibly high standards that Molly should have, she chooses them anyway. And again, like Schmidt's performance is not um, like a requisite for her to be in relationship with him. Like she sees beyond it. She sees his heart and she sees the core of who he is and like chooses him to love in spite of that. It's good that you're mad at me. I think it's good. I, I think you should be mad at more guys because you deserve a guy who, who who's good and who doesn't lie to you. And you should never settle for less than that. And there are good guys out there who aren't assholes like me. Thanks for saving my life. And so that reminds me of Romans 5, 8, like while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so even though Christ sees the the depth of the sin that we have, like he sees beyond that and he sees who like we were created to be in his father's image and chooses to love that and chooses to die for it. Um, and so I think just that's a really powerful moment there that uh, Molly is willing to love Schmidt, even though he has lied to her, he has, uh, he has broken pretty much every promise, but she sees his heart and sees that it's worth uh, being in a relationship with. Yeah, I think that's great. I agree with all that. And I would add, I think a lot of times when we think about sort of the relationship between God and his people or God and me, Kevin, you know, through that kind of like romantic lens, like we see that language throughout the Bible, you know, uh, the bride and the bridegroom, you know, Israel and the Lord. Um, the tendency can be to think that like God doesn't experience heartbreak because he's divine, whereas like we are human, like he's so permanent and so resolute and so unchanging that he can't get upset over us. But the reality is that in scripture over and over and over, God is mourning when Israel rejects him or leaves him or forsakes him. And and so I think to add to the metaphor, Molly leaves stage at the end of act two, you know, um, act two in the movie and in the play, which by the way, I think is a great thing where he's like, and that's the end of act two. Like that's just textbook screenwriting. <laughs> Anyways, uh, 
she leaves that stage crying because she's like, I never want to talk to you again. Like you hurt me. And I think we think, okay, the metaphor breaks down there. Like God would never do that with us. But I think he actually does get really emotional over us. And I think it helps me to think of God that way because it shows how much he cares. Like if he's a robot, he doesn't quite have that sense of like, how can you do this to me, Schmidt? Like, I thought you loved me, you know? But I think when we look in Scripture carefully, we see that God really does actually behave what seems to be a little bit, like, emotionally whimsically, but it is somehow divinely not. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, can you kind of rephrase that a little bit? Yeah, so I guess what I'm basically trying to say is that God gets just as heartbroken over us as Molly does over Schmidt. Hmm, yeah. Like, she gets confused and scared and hurt downright hurt when schmidt treats her poorly especially i'm thinking of at the play and i'm thinking of the scene where she brings up prom and she's kind of like i just want to make sure you're not getting into anything like she really cares about him and there is this sense of uncertainty yeah i even like that moment when it's like they should kiss but then he goes in for the handshake and put her there and part of that is like because of the nature of their relationship like he's actually an adult and she's in high school and it's like kind of creepy um, but at the same time, I think it's it's easy for us to kind of keep God at the handshake level distance. Yeah, and like that's great. Not really open us up, ourselves up to that vulnerability of like really right. being kissed in a weird romantic way. But like, I think it's really beautiful. Yeah, especially I, I think when we turn Christianity into like a set of principles, moral or otherwise, to live by, we're we're essentially doing the uh, put her there, put her there, right there. This is a LinkedIn, put her there, baby. <laughs> this is a LinkedIn certified agreement, and it is no more. You will not see me on a Friday night. <laughs> 40 hours a week baby that's my christianity (laughs) exactly so i don't know it helps me to think of god as getting really emotional over us like like god would actually storm off the stage upset because we didn't come through uh and somehow i can somehow reconcile that with his unchanging divine sovereignty that's sort of unfathomable anyways my Jesus Award, I'm going more middle of the road here. I'm going Janko. It was kind of a toss-up to me between Janko and Schmidt because, you know, in these buddy cop movies where you essentially have, like, two main characters that are kind of meeting in the middle, it can be tough. But I think for a few narrative reasons, it's got to be Janko for me. One is, like I talked about in the Lazarus Award, justification, being declared righteous. Like, he takes the bullet for his friend even when that friend has been a total jerk. And that reminds me of the verse you just read, Romans 5. I'm going to extend it to verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the righteous what? No, no, no. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Janko took that bullet for Schmidt, even when Schmidt had been such a jerk to him, you know? Um, and that's like the move that begins to thaw the ice. And then part two, sanctification. And again, we talked about this in the, in the Lazarus Ward. For the most part, I think Janko, I mean, not always, but I think he does kind of equip and encourage Schmidt throughout the movie, making him a better cop and a better human being. Uh, we see this in the police training at the beginning. We see it in what this is a, a moment that I really like is the confrontation before the play where he says, you're in too deep. You know, look at yourself. You're in too deep. Um, and basically start trying to look out for his better interests. And then three telling Schmidt he's got this, promising that he won't choke, take the shot. And then we also talked about that. And for that, I've got John 15, 1 through 2 for a few things here. Um, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. 
And so I think we see that kind of pruning in the confrontation before the play. Look, man, you're in too deep. Like I'm going to, I got to prune this part of you. But then there's also that sense of abiding. Like at the end of the day, they want to be brothers and he's going to relentlessly pursue it. Three, and this is the part that we haven't talked about yet. Janko's approval. It's really Janko's approval that Schmidt longs for at the end of the day. And you talked about this with Eric in your Mary Magdalene. Uh, but this is Schmidt's big self-revelation from listening to the dying Johnny Depp tell the same thing to his undercover partner. It was just so that people would think I'm cool. The only approval that I ever needed was my best friend. Thanks, man. And I think this is the case for us and for Jesus. We desperately hope that we can somehow be approved of by God, that our choices in our lives matter, that the chapters of our lives are meaningful and are actually building to something. They're going somewhere narratively. And the good news is that we can know that God approves of us and that those things are true. And I'm going to go right back to John 15. This is verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That is a crazy verse. As God has loved his own Son, who is fully God, that God has loved us in the same manner. That is that is like incomprehensible. We read right over that with no idea what it's saying. Verse 13, greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's what we see, like we talked about with Janko. Um, but I think what's so moving to me about this whole movie, and I was really reflecting, like, why do I love this movie so much? Why do I give it a five stars out of five? Schmidt and Janko have no business being friends. They are polar opposites. But they come to see each other as brothers. And I think that is really the picture of the church. Um, there's a poet and a memoirist named Mary Carr, who my pastor preached on, uh, or like used a sword from her. And this is the story. Uh, Mary Carr became a Christian late in her life and career. And one day at Catholic Mass, she was using her iPad to follow the church readings. But someone in a coat and tie came up from behind her and told her, turn that thing off, and said that the light was bothering him. And Carr later wrote about this, I thought for a minute, I'm trying to be a Christian, but whatever. So she spent the whole service without her iPad and silently wishing that man dead. But then something happened that my own pastor calls the unbelievable. After the service ended, that same man in a coat and tie walked up to Mary Carr and said, I'm so sorry. I know there's something wrong with me. Reflecting on that day, Carr later wrote, A lot of times I walk into Mass and I look at the people and I think, these are not my people. But invariably, by the end of Mass, I walk out and people look different to me. These are my people. Perhaps even they reflect my God. The church is full of people who have no business being friends with each other, but are. And I think that's at least a big part of why the buddy cop storyline resonates with us as human beings, even beyond 21 Jump Street. I think we really want to believe as humans that two radically different people can overcome all odds and become brothers or sisters. That is the story of Jesus' followers, united in submission to and dependence on God. He redefines the prerequisites for meaningful relationships. And really, even beyond that, that's the story of us and God, right? That we are the two radically different people or beings that can kind of be united. And so I think... That's what's so cool, I think, about this movie is Schmidt and Janko. No business being friends, and yet they can. And I think Janko takes the cake narrowly for the Jesus Award for me because he takes the bullet and because he's the one who does the biblical confrontation before the play. He's the one who tells Schmidt he's got this. And it's really his approval narratively that Schmidt is seeking. Like, Schmidt's the one who's given the self-revelation of like, oh, it's actually my buddy's approval that I've wanted this whole time. It's not Eric. Um, 
you know, so that's why I think just a couple things on a structural writing level that make it Janko for me. Yeah, I love it. I think that's a, you could make, you made a really good biblical argument for that. And again, I, I would like to kind of one up that he is uh, the true and greater Eric. I feel like we use the true and greater phrasing a lot, but is really fulfilling what like he Schmidt initially thinks that Eric will fulfill. Right. And like, I like what you said about how Eric is basically using Schmidt as a means to an end. It's like, does he really care about him or is he just like a new business partner that he finds fun to be around? Whereas God like deeply cares about us independent of our ability to be useful to him. Mm -hmm. And I think we just don't believe that as Christians. Like we just think God needs to use us and he needs us to be obedient. But that's just, it's crazy. That's a crazy thought. Yeah. He don't need us, but he do want us. Yeah, there's a great 10th Avenue North song about that called Control. Look it up. So that's it for the awards, and now onto the Q&A. But first, an announcement. Need new running shoes? Want to support a local business? Omega Sports sells running shoes and a variety of athletic apparel and equipment both in stores and online at omegasports.com. For online orders of at least $90, they offer free shipping everywhere. And use the redemption code JIM for Jesus and Movies. Doing so gives you 10% off your purchase and gives another 10% towards our production costs. Again, that's omegasports.com. Code JIM for a discount and to support us. Now on to our Q&A. Graham, once again, we have no questions from the patrons. You and I have talked to, I think we're going to kind of revamp how that works because I think Q&A could have a lot of potential, but right now it's just not accessible. Anyways, we'll figure that out. For now, I wrote one question for you. What is redeemable about all the sex, drugs, and alcohol that this movie drags us through? And what isn't? I think that the movie argues that sex, drugs, and alcohol are kind of a means to infiltrate this sort of high school friend group. Like, they're a means to get into a relationship with Eric. They're totally. a means to uh, earn credibility. But ultimately, like, I don't think that's what this movie is arguing for, that we need to go and, like, earn our own credibility around, among the cool crowd, right? Because, like, credibility and, like, security comes through being real with the people we're already in relationship with, i.e., like, the Schmidt, Schmidt and Janko. So... Sure, like there's that scene in which they're kind of in the drug locker and they're like, pound of coke, we're not trying to ruin their lives, like pound of marijuana, best Best party party ever. ever. So yeah, there's definitely some glorification there, but I think ultimately like, I'm I'm not necessarily saying that the movie argues that like alcohol and like drunkenness and all of that leads to like a better life, like in some ways, yes, but I think it's not 100% swung that direction yeah and i think in the same spirit of what we talked about earlier about how self-referential this movie is how it makes fun of itself quite a bit there's that great line in the cafeteria where schmidt says to janko we just need to do something wildly irresponsible to gain their trust and so i think in a subtle way like the movie does kind of argue like this is such a stupid thing but like why does this work for high school like why do high schoolers believe this um and similarly what you had said about molly reminded me of the line where eric is basically like whoa, man, it's cool. Like, you're not stepping on any toes here. Like, we just blow each other left and right, but it ain't anything serious, you know? And it's like, that doesn't mean anything or whatever. Whereas, like, I feel like when you're 30 or 40, maybe it's like, okay, like, it would take someone pretty serious in your life to, you know, be doing that, like, every other night or whatever. (laughs) Like, but, like, yeah, I think they kind of pick fun at the high school, like, way of thinking a little bit. Does that make sense? Is that a reach? Oh, yeah. No, I agree. It's like, I got to go to Berkeley. I'm going to go to Berkeley, man. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i think it's definitely poking fun of that yeah okay sadly we've got to stop the discussion there but before we close here's a quick shout out to all our supporters on patreon who made this discussion possible andy simmons ben dunbar Bess mclawhorn clay young courtney carlock craig carlock graham hooten helen webster jacob derizio janet hooten john pabone ken hooten Kristen carlock and mike thank you so much for your support 
A few quick housekeeping things. Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram at Jesus and Movies. Give us a follow and a like so you can see what movies are up next. If you'd like to support the Jesus and Movies podcast, Patreon is for sure our preferred way of support. And signing up for a dollar a month lets you pick the movies, submit questions for the Q&A, get shouted out on the podcast, and featured on our Instagram. So if you'd like to join the group, please do so at patreon.com slash Jesus and Movies or on the free app, which is great. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple, please give us a review and let us know what you think. It really helps us to improve and figure out what's working and what isn't. This podcast is young. We're looking for feedback. We're young, scrappy, and hungry, so to speak. Hamilton. That's right. Um, Maybe we should do Hamilton. Suggest that. I guess it is a movie now, isn't it? I guess it Um, is. (laughs) uh, But anyways, the Apple review also helps us to reach new people, so it's helpful uh, for that as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that though you didn't meet his standards, Jesus chose and took the bullet for you so that the two of you could be best friends and that it's his approval that you're looking for at the end of the day. And we'll see you next week.